You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Here's my initial mantra for this month. You are my people because we are his people. And if we are his people, that would be God's people, then you must be my people. Like I don't get to just say, well, yeah, I don't like them. Uh, they must, they're gonna need to be in another part of heaven. Um, that's not how this works. And so in the month of September, which Pastor Robert's done a great job already setting up, uh, we want to talk about what it means to be the people of God because God desired to have a people and desires to have a people because he uttered those words first, you are my people. We get to look at one another in the body of Christ and be in the same family. We get to say those words, you're my people. So belonging to a group of people is something that we all understand. And, and when I say that on the macro level, when I say, hey, because we're, if you're a Christian, you're a part of the body of Christ and you belong to the people of God, we're cool with that. Like that's the, that's the one thing that we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. I, I'm a part of the body of Christ. Well, then you're like, well, the, what's the local body that you're a part of? Yeah, I don't, I don't really do that. Oh, so what you're saying is you're a part of the body of Christ in a macro level, but you don't want to do so on a micro level because that means you'd have to be in real relationships with people. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And we wouldn't necessarily say that out of our mouth, but we say that with how we relate to the body of Christ, the church. But then on a micro level, which I think we all also understand is that when we find that person or persons right that we just meet them and it's like we click right away like man I, we we have a lot in common and the more we talk about the more we find that we have in common right and then you find out that you have some differences and that you don't have everything in common but what you have in common is more than what you have in differences or what's in common matters more than the differences you have and then you find out that, hey, I don't even have to plan things with this person. I just like, you know, like we could just, we can plan stuff to hang out or we can just hang out. We don't have to talk. We don't have to fill up the room with, with noise because we're uncomfortable. We just feel safe and secure. If they're just around, I feel safe and secure. Maybe you know those types of people. And when you find those people or you find a, a group of people like that, you want to go, look, these are my people. That's my tribe. That's my fam. That's my brother. That's my sister these are my people I feel safe I feel secure I, I can be myself and the family of God is supposed to be the place that we find that type of people the most quickly and the most easily and yet at times or maybe a lot of times it's the place that we find it the last or the least and why is that? Because the truth of the matter is, is if, if we have been made a part of God's family, then that's, a great, that's actually more family than our natural family. Why? Because of the natural family, I have the blood that runs through my veins that makes us common. But because we're in the body of Christ, I have the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross for our benefit to make us one and to make us family. And that is actually greater than the blood that runs through my veins. 
Y'all are already doing better than the first service and we haven't even got into it yet. I literally had to ask if they were actually there awake or if it was just holograms. So the month of September is an exciting time for us and uh, we love this time in this house and we, we love to celebrate the local church. We love to share testimonies of what God's doing in and through us as a church. We love to just uh, have fun together. So Robert's already mentioned a few things. We've got a baptism service coming up. We love to do baptisms in this month. It's be about the third time we've done it this year, but we are planning and always plan to have a baptism service in September. So if you want to be baptized, we've got a class coming up. You could sign up to be be a part of that at the end of the month. Uh, as mentioned, we have our Serve the City project that's happening. It does the last Saturday of every month. We continue to do this, and we'll be down in the Laney Walker District continuing to serve down there. We also have the picnic with my people that you're going to hear more about. Love to do that. We've got a, a commitment Sunday, a Close the Gap offering where we're going to uh, jump out in faithful generosity and giving as the body of Christ. And here's the great thing. We get to do all of that together yes because if I was going to do that by myself it wouldn't be any fun picnic with me that's not really a picnic that's just like a solo lunch right uh, or or a, a massive generous giving with me that ain't gonna pay the mortgage so all of these things we do by bearing the weight of ministry as the people of God together. And if this is your house, just like your own house, you have responsibilities in that house, but it's a whole lot easier to do all the things in your home when all of the family is put pitching in together. And somebody should say amen if you're doing it all the work by yourself. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be the people of God. And simply put, when God called us his people, we're talking about the local church. And I'll start by saying this again, you are my people because we are his people. The only way that we can be one another's family is because God calls us and makes us his family. And so everything that would say that we shouldn't be family or that would divide us, all of that is broken down by the power of Jesus Christ. And he brings us together and he puts us in this beautiful, diverse family. And he says, those are my people. And we get to say that with him. And this has always been God's plan. It has always been God's plan. It is still God's plan that he would have a people that are set apart to love him and to glorify him and that he could dwell with them. Psalm 100 says it clearly and succinctly in verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We just came out of a series, Alpha and Omega, the story of Scripture. And if you missed any of that, you should go back and listen to a podcast or watch it on our YouTube channel. And I'll just say this, give a plug to the YouTube channel. If you've not subscribed to that, they said it in the pre-show, please do that. I think we're like 15 subscribers away from being at the 1,000 mark. And that actually means something uh, just as it, uh, a stream of monetary flow for the body here at InFocus when you reach that mark. So if you've not liked this, it actually would be a way to, to help us all all of us out. So we talked about creation, fall, 
redemption and restoration. That was the story that is the story of scripture. That's the story that we're still living. But one part I left out of that narrative was the people of God. So it actually would be fall or creation, fall, people, redemption, restoration. When God created the world, he had a desire for a holy people who would love, obey, and worship him, not because he lacked anything, not because he had some sort of need or some sort of narcissist or, or had some, something that he wanted. That's not why. But the reason is it was an overflow, simply an overflow of his relational goodness and unity within the Trinity itself. And this relational perfection of love spilled out of him into creation in order that the created would affectionately worship and live in relational harmony with their creator and with one another. Just think about that, the fact that God's love spilled out into creation so that we would be in perfect harmony with him, just like he was in perfect harmony with himself and with one another. But because of the fall, which is humanity's rebellion and sin against God, this relational utopia has been an exercise in futility ever since. Not because God's not good, but because humanity is just really that bad. And everybody should have said amen to that too, so... Well, not that you really want it to be that way, but it just kind of is. Let's talk through the biblical pattern that God creates his people. That's creation. His people fall. That's the fall. He redeems his people, redemption. And then he restores his people, restoration. Then his people fall again. And then he, what? Redeems and restores. Yes. And then they fall again. Like just go through the Bible, just dial and repeat. Over and over and over again. Fall, redemption, restoration. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God, thank God. God keeps making a way where there seems to be no way because he is a redeemer and because he is a restorer. And where there is no way, he makes a way. And he makes one people, one people of God that span the redemptive work from Genesis to Revelation. And the church now, you and I, if you've given your life to Jesus, we are those people today we are in his divine image made to be image bearers in the earth today we're a part of a long lineage of image bearers throughout history so let me ask you this how's it going in your life as being one who bears the image of God it's just a tough question how am I doing at being an image bearer of God and that's what I want to talk about today as his people that's what we're called to be so I want to do a little bit of work as it relates to biblical theology this morning. And then talk about how we can best be God's people. Remember, the only way that I can call you my people is because God first calls us his people. And we can do that awkward turn thing that you look at the neighbor beside you that you don't know. And we could say this together. You are my people because we are his people. No, nobody wants to do that? Okay, see. See, I always wondered... Nobody really likes to do that, but pe preachers always tell people to do that anyway, and nobody wants to do that. It'd be like somebody on the movie theater going, hey, just stop the movie for a minute. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and ask him for some of his popcorn? Like, you wouldn't do that. It'd just totally mess everything up, but we continue to persist and press to make you do awkward things, but you don't have to, but that's the truth. You are my people, and you can think about everybody in this room, whether you know them or not because of what Christ has done. They are your people because we are his people. 
Psalm 95 reiterates, come, let us worship and bow down. That's what we do when we gather on Sunday. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And what? We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. I won't get into the fact that being a sheep really isn't that good of of an analogy or metaphor, but that's another message for another time. How do we become his people initially? And then how do we become his people currently? That's a good question because I want to be God's people. Don't you? I want to be the kind of people that bear the image of God. So if we go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God created a cosmic sanctuary in the heavens and the earth. A cosmic sanctuary where he would dwell in his presence and his sovereignty and he would rule. Then God created the crown jewel of creation when he created humanity made in his image and why did he create humanity for what purpose were we placed here and here's why we're here we've been fashioned to dwell in God's presence and given the responsibility to bring his glory to the ends of the earth humanity has been fashioned to dwell in God's presence and given the responsibility to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. This is what we were created for, to bring and spread the glory of God all over the earth. While God now dwells not just around us, but because of Jesus, he dwells in us. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's break it down a little bit more. God made Adam and Eve. In creation, there's creation. God made Adam and Eve. He made them in his image. And because we are made in his image, we were made in a divine image. So we're made in the divine image of God. And we as humanity are to reflect the divine image of God in the earth. So the divine image of God is divided into three categories that I want to explore throughout this series. And we'll look at one of them today. But we're divided into king, priest, and prophet. Those are the divine image categories. This is how we image God still today as king, priest, and prophet. Adam and Eve were made kings. They were supposed to rule over the earth, which meant they would rule over all of creation together. They were co-laboring together with God, ruling together. They were also created to be priests, which meant they would mediate God's presence and worship and service before him. And they were created to image God as a prophet, which meant they would embody God's truth. Because prophecy isn't just something that we say that is part of it, but it is more than what we say. It's actually what we live. So they would be God's prophet as the embodiment of truth. Because God is true. So last week we mentioned that the new heaven and the new earth. All right, did I get it all out? Maybe so. I got it all out of me. I don't know if it was a demon in me, it's out. So last week I mentioned the new heaven and the new earth. And it would be a place where hell is forever kept out and sin and evil would have no way of infiltrating. Well, that's why new creation is actually better than Eden. Remember, we're not trying to restore Eden. New creation is better than than Eden because why? Because in new creation, there is no temptation. There is no sin. There is no evil that can infiltrate. Eden, a different story. So temptation comes in. The serpent comes in. And listen to this. There was trouble because why? Image bearers are meant to reflect and refract God. 
The tension with image bearers is that they will resemble what they worship. Image bearers will always be transformed into the object of their worship. Is it any wonder that Scripture says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith? And I don't care what you say you worship. What I'm telling you in our lives is what I see reflected in your life is what you really worship, no matter what you say you worship. So in the fall, not the fall, autumn fall, but the fall of man, slowly but surely the divine image bearers, Adam and Eve, started to worship something other than God. They started to worship themselves. And what people revere, they resemble either for their ruination or their restoration. So what you revere and what you worship, you'll begin to resemble. And so Adam and Eve revered themselves over God, and they did so to their own ruination. But God, because he's loving and gracious and a covenant-keeping God, was determined to people who would worship and dwell with him. And then God's people, because he's gracious and loving, would be restored in their revering and in their worship of God. That's why when we worship God and we're in his presence and we're changed more into being who he is, into his image, we're being restored day by day. That's what scripture says. And so the more we revere God, the more we worship God, the more we do so to our own restoration. What people revere, they resemble either to their ruin or to their restoration. And this isn't exclusive to Adam and Eve. We know this because we can revere things. That means admire, esteem, value, treasure, put above everything else. We can revere things other than God. And when we do, it ruins us. Always does. Maybe for a little while, feels like it doesn't. Looks okay, feels okay. But in the end, when anything is revered over God, it ruins us. And the fall had horrible effects on us as people. It had a horrible impact on God's people and on those created to bear his image. The fall didn't destroy the divine image of God. That's why there's the imprint of God in every single person on this planet. We call it the Imago Dei. It didn't destroy the divine image of the creator that is imprinted on the created, but it did distort it. What used to be a clear mirror was now like one that you couldn't see through as clearly. I remember when Carla and I got married early on, and I think we moved into our first little house. And uh, it was like one of those old houses where the furnace was in the middle of the house, right, on the, in the floor, the one when you were a kid, if you walked over, you burnt your feet off. Like, I remember having those footy pajamas as a little kid that had the plastic feet on them and being at my grandparents' house and walking across and kind of standing there until you smelled burning plastic. And you're just like, whoa, you know, that, that, that was the heater in the house, right? It was hot. Well, that has nothing to do with the story. So, um, but that was the house, had the little heater, had two little bedrooms, and there was this attic. And I don't know if it was in the attic or if it was just in the house. There was this massive mirror. And we're like, why is that here? And then we're like, well, it's going to throw it away. And then we realized how expensive mirrors were, like framed mirrors. So we already had the mirror, and we just paid to get it framed. And then when now it's, it's still at our house today, somehow 20-plus years later, right? And here's the thing about that mirror, though. When we got it framed, we hung it up, and down in the corner was like this cloudy kind of, it was just 
marred a little bit. And I'm spraying it and I'm wiping it and it like it doesn't go away because it really wasn't on the outside. And that's the thing about the image of God, that we're divine image bearers, but a lot of us, like, we're like these antique mirrors that have kind of gotten cloudy and dark, and whatever we do, trying to clean it up on the outside, on the external, if I just do this, and I look like this, and I say this, and I spray the holy Windex on my mirror, I'll reflect God better. But the reality is, is you can't clean what's on the inside by trying to clean it on the outside. That's why Jesus said, it's not what comes out of the mouth of the man that defiles him. It's what comes out from the inside, what's in the heart that defiles a man and comes out. So the image of God has been marred because of the fall. What's cloudy now on the inside can't be cleaned off on the outside. And because of this, our ability to reflect and refract God has now become a spiritual battle that we walk through on a daily basis, right? It's a battle that we're in. Humanity was created to bring glory to God, and now we oftentimes attempt to bring glory to what? Ourselves. We are living, here's the thing, we're supposed to be kings, prophets, and priests, but we're living in a long line of anti-kings who now rule viciously by abusing one another, whether verbally or physically, instead of caring and loving for one another. We come from a long lineage of anti-priests who will defile the created order and worship everything but the one true living God. How do we do that? I don't worship any golden calves. Well, maybe we worship clothing instead of a golden calf. Maybe we worship politics over people, money over mission, comfort over crucible, or maybe we worship the newest smartphone over our divine calling. See what I did there? All of this ultimately put it in the category of me over God. What I want over what God wants. And finally, we come from a long line of anti-prophets who will deceive instead of tell the truth and embody all teaching that is hostile to God instead of embodying the truth of God. And all of these adulterations of God's divine image can subtly and sinisterly sneak into our lives and distort the image of God in our lives like a cloudy antique mirror. As our biblical story goes, God graciously preserves a godly line because he wanted a people. And although Adam and Eve fell, he had a plan to redeem and restore. And he did that through the line of Seth. And then he brought out Noah. And I don't have time to get into it, but Noah fulfilled the role of prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled all three of those roles. But just like everything else, history repeats itself and they fall. He falls. His family falls. And it just keeps getting worse. What humanity keeps doing to one another is way worse than how it all started. Instead of just one brother killing a brother, now it's nations killing nations. God then makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. So, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my people, I'm gonna do this. And now Israel is the corporate Adam and they fail to follow God's way of king, priest, and prophet. And then God again has to restore and redeem and redeem and restore. And he does so with his people and he does it again and again and again, over and over and over throughout the entire Old Testament. He, he restores and he redeems and God's people fall and he restores and he redeems and God's people fall and he takes them through and delivers them out of Egypt and they complain and they fall over and over and over again. The story's the same. And God demonstrates through his sacrifice and through his discipline that all of the things that he's doing with his desire to dwell with us is because he deeply loves you. He loves his people. 
And God graciously chose Israel to be his people. And they would fall. And now ethnicity is not the ultimate determining factor in your relationship with God. And I'm grateful for that. But he did sovereignly and graciously cut a covenant with Israel, a particular group of people. But they kept making a way to fall away and not dwell with their God. They kept rejecting him. But Israel is just a part of the larger story that we're now a part of. God's commitment, here's the story, God's commitment to securing a people group from all ethnicities for himself and dwelling intimately with them. Adam, Noah, Abraham, and all the covenants there, Israel, and the church are all a part of the same covenant community with three different periods or epochs is what we call it in theology of biblical history, but not until Jesus shows up and breaks the pattern does anything change when Jesus cuts what? A new covenant with his own blood that is the type of blood that makes us family. For the sake of time, I won't go into too much depth of how Jesus fulfilled every role perfectly of king, priest, and prophet. But I do want to take just a moment to say that Jesus is ultimately all of those things, right? He is the king of kings. Revelation says, when everything starts to kind of wrap up as we know it, Revelation 19, 16 says, and on his robe and on his thigh was a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. He is our priest as well. We call him the great high priest. Hebrews 4 describes it perfectly when it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And how did he go through all things that we have gone through and not given into temptation? Because he is our prophet. He is the embodiment of truth. He demonstrated this role perfectly in the wilderness as he faithfully embodied God's truth and law during his 40-day wilderness temptation. And Jesus was faithful at every single point where Adam and Israel and every other king and every other prophet were not. He only spoke the word of God. He was God's mouthpiece to the world, but he was also different from a traditional prophet because he was also God himself. Jesus' words were God's words. He wasn't just speaking the word of God. He was embodying the word of God. He's Jesus, the living word. And because of this, Jesus' subsequent death, burial, and resurrection, because of that, we are now being restored. Scripture says, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, day by day until we are finally and completely restored and continue to serve as God's image bearers in this new creation. But in the meantime, because we're not there, right? We're not in the new creation. We're still here. We're in the God's already done it, the now, the already and we're not quite fully consummation of that, so it's the not yet. Jesus returns, fully consummates all of that, and we become this, but in the meantime, he's already fulfilled this, he's already won the victory, so how do we live as God's people? How do we become those people? And remember, you're my people because we're his people. All right, I'm gonna make you turn and say this to somebody if you don't respond. (laughs) You are my people, why? Because we are his people. Okay, thank you. Turn to your neighbor and say it. No, just kidding. (laughs) This means that Jesus has become the cornerstone of our life. 
This means that we are the body of Christ through what Christ has done. And he is building us up to be a spiritual house that is in union with Christ. 1 Corinthians says it this way in chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, bad, but in Christ shall all be made alive. Good news. Ephesians 2.13, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So, my people, that's what you are, because we are his people, God applies Christ's obedience to the covenant that he made with Adam and Israel and now to the church through Jesus Christ. We reap the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross, and since he is the perfected of God who lived it out perfectly in the earth the church you and I are the corporate perfected image of God today today with what time we have left I just want to talk about what it means to be a king in the earth did you know that you are all young kings and we just use the masculine form of that that's what we are we're all young kings the kingship of believers now before you start getting any ideas what that means like somebody's going to come up and like you know tie your shoes for you before you leave or something or help out or serve you breakfast in bed. That's not what this is about. Let's think about who the king of kings was and what he did and how he lived his life. Because he, as the king of kings, very paradoxical, was beaten instead of praised. Instead of being lifted up on a throne, he was lifted up on a cross. He was crucified as a criminal instead of being worshipped as the king of kings. He was not marked by political or military might, but by suffering and death. So let's talk about what it means to be a king, my young kings. I think we can be guilty of wanting more of a worldly version of power and might, exactly what Israel wanted than a spiritual version of power and might as kings, young kings, and say, well, I'm not that young. No, in light of eternity, we're all young kings, all right? Hallelujah, all of my older people say, I'm young, I'm a young king, woo, I am. But we want this military, militaristic, kind of political, monetary power and wealth in this physical world right now, and yet there's a spiritual power that God's talking about that we're supposed to have as Christians. That people that, and I'm not talking about the world. The world's gonna want power that way. I'm talking about how Christians want God to rule, just like Israel. We wanna be powerful. We want biscuits at Buckingham Palace, and instead what Jesus said is, I'm gonna give you the bread of life in the upper room while we're hiding away. Look at what Jesus does as the king of kings when commissioning the disciples to be young kings in the earth and expand the kingdom of God. He does so by saying, we're gonna welcome the nations into this community of faith first. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, and if you've been around church any amount of time, you've heard this before. If you haven't, this is a powerful verse. It's a commissioning for us. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This declaration is tied to a question that the disciples just asked in the previous two verses. So let's back up to verse 6, Acts chapter 1. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. They wanted to know is, hey, Jesus, you said the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes like you said he's going to come, is that when you're going to push out these pagan Romans and put us back in rulership? Is that when we're going to get our, what, what's our due? Is that when it's all going to come down? So when the Holy Spirit shows up, that's when you're going to make us back in power. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm saying. 
As a matter of fact, you're not even going to know the time that all of this is going to culminate. You won't know when it happens until it happens. But here's what you're going to do in the meantime, in the now of the already of the not yet, you're going to go be young kings. You're going to go be witnesses in all the earth. You're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And this is the fulfillment of Genesis 1.28 that God was telling to Adam and Eve that you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's the fulfillment of that. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is an assurance that Jesus' name will be proclaimed to all the nations as God's people bear his image and he dwells within them now. Now watch this, because God's been trying to do this, right, since creation, and God breathed on Adam the breath of life, the word of God says, and he made that covenant with Adam, and he's gonna, they're going to be fruitful and multiply. He breathed the breath of life on Adam, but then he gave his presence to Israel at Mount Sinai. Then he poured out the Holy Spirit on his son, Christ, at the Jordan River. And then at Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit once more on all humanity, restoring his image with us. And this was the formal commissioning service of God to restore the function of king, priests, and prophets back to God's people, back to the church today, so that we can be young kings in the earth. Practically, how do we as God's people image God as kings? In the earth today, I'll start with Romans 16, and then I'll land the plane. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're revering something else, and it's to their own ruination. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good, and I want you to be innocent about what is evil. This last part should remind you of the mandate that God and the warning that God gave in Genesis 2.17 when he said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll certainly die. And now Paul is saying to the church, hey, I want you to be wise about what is good. I don't want you to be innocent about what is evil. Paul is saying that as the church, we're to be a better version of Adam and Eve by actually holding fast to God's wisdom in our service to the church, the body of Christ. And how do we do that? By living set apart, by living holy lives, by keeping out false teaching in the local church. We're to embody the truth of God. That's what these young kings, that's what we're supposed to do. And then what's going to happen? Romans 16, 20, one of my favorite verses. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And this links back to Genesis 3.15 when the devil was being cursed and God says, and he will crush your head. Isn't this amazing that through you and I, the church today, God continues to fulfill the promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the very beginning? That the God of peace will crush the head of the enemy. See, at the heart of the gospel is the fact that Jesus has already won the victory. At the heart of the gospel is that we are on the victorious side. Paul highlights this and he says, listen up, young kings. Hear me, church. You have victory over wickedness. You have victory over every power of evil. 
The victory Jesus won on the cross continues to be fulfilled by the kings of the church. And our lives should be characterized by the defeat of sin in our own lives. And if we're really kings, we'll live in such a way that is marked by righteousness, not wickedness. Why? Because Christ delivered us to reign with him, not to be imprisoned by sin. To be kings in the earth. And in case we forgot, as kings representing God's kingdom... We're still in a spiritual battle right now against another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. This is a battlefield that we're in. The devil continues to resist. He continues to fight. He continues to lie. He continues to deceive, to seek, to kill, and destroy, and all the things that he does. He continues to do those things, but we are to continue to declare that the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet because it's already been achieved through Jesus Christ on the cross. We, the church, God's people, are the vehicle through which God proclaims reconciliation to a hurting, fearful, lost, and broken and dying world. So if we've truly been reconciled by God through Jesus Christ, then our relationships with one another, my people, the body, should look like we've been reconciled and the kings should be working together, not competing against each other. So often I feel like in the kingdom of God, we've got kings of different kingdoms and we're all competing against each other. Why is that? If we're fighting for the same kingdom, why aren't we fighting against the kingdom of darkness instead of young kings fighting to have their kingdoms known more than everybody else's? You know, I kind of gave up on the being popular thing long time ago even though our hearts always battle that right we want to be known we want to be seen we want to be heard and we say things like well it's for the glory of God and it's for him and this that and the other but yet deep down inside sometimes there's that tension between yeah I kind of want to do this for myself and God's like yeah that's that same battle that's been going on since Adam and Eve are you going to revere your popularity or are you going to revere my kingdom So we represent the kingdom of God in a battle right now, but we exercise the king of kings authority and establishing the only kingdom that really matters. That's what I'm trying to say. The only kingdom that really matters is the kingdom of not God, not the kingdom of man. So in closing, we the church are God's people and together we make up a remnant of young kings in the earth called to establish God's kingdom right where we are. There's a couple of ways that we do that. I don't have time to get into all of them, but one of them is very practical. We're really supposed to just kind of continue practically exercising rule over the created order of this world. In other words, we continue to fulfill the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 by caring for the earth and the things in the earth that God has blessed us with in responsible and unselfish ways. That's what good kings do. Just like I hope that's what you do at your little kingdom at your house. You just throw trash on the, on the living room floor. The second's on a spiritual level. That was practical. This is spiritual. You know, let me, let me stop. I'm, I'm sorry. Practically speaking, what we've been doing and what we continue to do as we serve the city is on a practical level with a spiritual dynamic. We're just cleaning up. Because that's what good kings do. Good kings serve instead of being served. 
Ooh. Yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm really going too long. Okay. Ephesians chapter 6, because this is the spiritual level. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against other people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does this mean? It means that we're to take God's given authority to us, the God-given authority and the rule over everything that he's given to us to a hostile world and put everything that is hostile to God underneath the rulership of God in whatever way we can. The principle is often coupled with the fact that we're fighting the enemy's tactics of lie and deceit and we fight that with truth and freedom and some of his primary spiritual weaponry is what we fight against with our spiritual weaponry which is praise and worship and truth and the word of God. But as young kings, God's people, the church, we have to learn God's word in order to establish it around us. We have to learn it so well that we can engage the world around us because we're supposed to be in it, just not of it. So we learn God's word. We embody God's word. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But we are wise as serpents and gentle as doves because that's what Jesus said he was going to send us out as into a place that's going to be like wolves to sheep. In Christ, we've already won the victory. That's what we have to remember. But as God's people, we have to continue to bring all of that life into conformity with God's will, starting with our own hearts that then spills out into every person and place that we encounter. Just like God's heart spilled out into creation, now those that are created into his image. When we love God and we worship God and we revere God in such a way that we can't contain it and it spills out of us into other people around us, we're bringing God's created order and his will to people and spaces and places that we go. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we still, as I said a moment ago, find ourselves desiring to be like Israel. And we're like, Jesus, is, so is this when you're going to make the Christians like the strong majority? Can I just tell you that Christians have never been the majority? Can I just tell you that Christians will never be the majority? How do I know that? Because that's what scripture tells me. I look at the, 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 the smallest tribe, Judah, Benjamin, the smallest army, Gideon, the smallest warrior, David, the smallest city, Bethlehem, the smallest king, baby Jesus, the smallest following, Oh, let me look. Jesus' Instagram. Zero followers. That's what it came down to. And if we're honest, we still do church and think about church in majority rules. We still think popular opinion is better than God's dominion over the earth. But here's what I want us to be and here's what I want us to do, church, and here's what I think God has called us. And it's not easy and it's not always fun, but there is an abiding joy. I believe we're called to be young kings in the earth who do unpopular things. Yeah. Young kings who do unpopular things. But those unpopular things are gonna bring glory to God and people in darkness are gonna stream to his marvelous light because of it, because it's countercultural and it looks different than the world around them and they're gonna say, whatever that is, I know it's not big and I know it's not popular and I know there's not a lot of followers on that Instagram account, but that is the life that I know I was created to live. 
So the privilege and the problem at the same time is we get to do all of that together. It's a privilege that we get to be family of God together. But it's also a problem. Because we're people. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you just haven't been here long enough. Or you haven't been to any church long enough. Or you haven't been in relationships with people long enough. Relationships with people are hard. It's going to be a problem at some point. But that's where we decide that what we have in common is more important than what we have that we differ about. That the solution and the answer, Jesus, is bigger than the problem. We'll get through the problem so that we can continue to be his people. So here we are, end of the message. You are my people because we're his people. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.